Hi, Journey. How y'all doing today? Thank you very, very much for the birthday greetings. Uh, I've been trying to keep it under wraps, and I, I had no idea that they were going to do that until last night. They did it. The, I, I figured they'd do it again this morning, so it wasn't a total surprise this morning. But last night, I was like, oh, oh my, like they bombed that in on me. I wanted y'all to think I was like 25 or something, you know, 40, good heavens. It's like old, isn't it? Really good to be with you all today. Thank you again for the birthday greetings. Don't talk about it anymore. Please, I'm in denial. So we're in week two of the series that we call God Behaving Badly. It's a title of a book written by a guy named David Lamb. I've been reading that book over the last several months, the whole time I've been reading that book. I've been saying, I have to share this stuff with Journey, so here it is. Lots and lots of credit uh, to David Lamb for resourcing my study. And today we're asking and hopefully we're answering this question, is God angry or is he loving? Like, which is it? Is God angry or is he loving? Which is it? I want to show you this Doonesbury comic that illustrates this pretty well. So here's a, a church scene, Sunday morning. It's a lot like ours, giant pulpit, you know, pastor wearing robe and stole Right? Not really. And here's what the pastor says. The wrath of God is being revealed in heaven, he says. And then here's Sam. That's her name. She's sitting in the pews and she's saying like, again, here we go. Right? Again. And then she meets with the reverend a little bit later. Reverend Sloan, I've been noticing something about the readings in church. Reverend says, what's that, Sam? Well, whenever you read from the Old Testament, God is always crabby and snarky to everyone. But the New Testament isn't about anger at all. It's about love. And Sam's statement really captures the essence of that alleged conflict between the anger of Yahweh in the Old Testament and the love of Jesus in the New Testament. And it's a great question. Is God really angry, crabby, and snarky? Is he? And if there's a popular image that almost instantly flashes to mind anytime you talk about God and anger, you know what it is? Got it in your head? It's the picture of someone being struck by lightning, right? For doing something that makes God mad. And I cannot count the number of times I've heard friends of mine say, Brian, you do not ever want me walking into the commons on a weekend for church because if I do, lightning's gonna strike. I'm like, no, no, it doesn't work like that. That's in the movies and cartoons. and so, no, They're like, no, really? I'm like, no, no, no. And it's been funny because over the years, some of those very same people, friends of mine, have made their way into this building, into this room for a weekend worship experience just like this. And so far, it's never one time happened. Lightning's never struck, like not even one time. And we talk a lot about God being primarily concerned about love, right? We hear a lot of that. And at the same time, the Old Testament talks an awful lot about Yahweh becoming angry, sometimes even killing people in his anger, right? You know these stories, which is why we're going to talk today about the tension that exists within God between his love and his anger. And we're not going to entirely settle this matter, right? All cards face up. We're just not going to be able to settle the matter once and for all. But my hope is that we would be able to better understand what it is that stirs God's anger and even how his anger actually makes sense. So let's dive in. One of the best Old Testament proof texts demonstrating God's anger is found in the narrative 
of a guy named Uzzah. You know the story? The story of a guy named Uzzah. It's in 1 Samuel chapter 4 and 5 in your Bible. The Ark of the Covenant, which isn't this thing spectacular, by the way. Like this is an actual size Ark of the Covenant that our teams around here have been working on for weeks and weeks. And they just did a spectacular job. Like that's the actual size of the Ark of the Covenant taken right from the biblical measurements. And so, and we did not expend your tithe dollars to gild it in gold. That's just gold spray paint, okay? Just so you know. Good stewards around here. So in 1 Samuel chapter 4 and 5, the Ark of the Covenant, this, I think this is just a replica, by the way. This is not the real Ark of the Covenant. Indiana Jones found that, and it's in a government warehouse somewhere, right? This thing has fallen into the hands of the Philistines in 1 Samuel chapter 4 and 5. After some time, King David was finally able to bring the Ark back to Jerusalem. That's the backstory. So I could just open the Bible and I could read this text, but that would be, well, that'd be very vanilla. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to actually recreate this scene right here on this stage, and I need some help, okay? I need 16 people to come up here, like right now. Just, like, get out of your chairs. Come up. Come on. 16 people. That's not quite 16. Come on. Two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. We're halfway there. Come on. Nine o'clock, you got quite a reputation, by the way, because as I'm talking, yeah, here we go. You have quite a reputation because as I'm talking about, do- yeah, come on, be bold, be brave. As I'm talking about doing this thing, people are like, all the worship experiences are going to go great. Saturday night will go great. You won't have any trouble getting volunteers. 11 will go great, but nine o'clock. They don't want to go up on that stage, I promise you, Brian. But look, look at that. We filled it all up. Okay, so here's what I need. I need one of you to be David. Who's going to be King David? Who looks Davidic? Okay, great. That's perfect. Go over there by the ark, and uh, don't touch the ark, okay? Don't do, open do it. No, no, don't open don't it, open don't touch it. it. But if you would, King David, if you'd shove the ark like over there, pa- right. past the, don't run it off the stage, that'd be great. I need five people or so to be the elite troops of Israel. Who are the elite troops of Israel? Yeah, here we got them right here. You're gonna go over there with King David. Yeah, a couple of, yeah, come on, elite troops of Israel. And then I need a, per- I need a person to be, oh, she's a perfect Uzzah right here. This is Uzzah. <laughs> I love this. A grow beard like that and you get picked for biblical roles. I need a guy named Ahio. Who wants to be Ahio? Yeah, Ahio right here. Nice job. You, it's not the Ohio, it's Ahio. I need some people, why don't you five people be the, the children of Israel, the people of Israel, right? So you just go, go hang out over there. You'll see how all this works in just a moment. Oh, this one's really fun. I need, oh, it's you two. Uh, you guys, you all right with this? You're oxen, okay? Oxen. So go over there, hitch up to the cart, if you would, and you are the Lord. So if you would come with me, and if you just step right up there, that'd be just perfect. Yeah, that was awesome. Okay, you guys ready? Now, this is called a spontaneous melodrama, right? So I am going to narr- You don't have to speak. I'm, you, like, you don't have to speak. You're just going to act out. You're going to step through these parts. I'm going to read the text, and when it comes to your part, you're going to do what the Bible says, okay? Stay out of the water, if you'd be so kind. Then David, where's my David? Where's David? Yeah. David, again, gathered all of the elite troops of Israel, 30, so gather them, some 30,000 in all, the Bible says, he led them to Bala of Judah, which is right over there. Bala of Judah is right over there where you are, to bring back the ark of God 
which bears the name of the Lord of heaven's armies, who is enthroned between the cherubim. The cherubim are those angelic looking creatures. Don't, are you touching it? Are you touching the ark? Oh my gosh, yeah. Wow. Do not, whatever you do, do not touch the ark. They placed the ark of God. This is where you're going to pretend because we already did some of the work for you. We weren't sure how strong our volunteers were going to be. They placed the ark onto a new cart and they brought it from Abinadab's house which was on a hill. Okay, so are you ready? You're about to bring the cart. Now, now here, wait, here we go. Uzzah and Ahio, Abinadab's sons, were guiding the cart as it left the house carrying the ark of God. Ahio walked in front of the ark. Where's my Ahio? He walked in front of the ark. Wait, are you Uzzah? You gotta get closer to the ark. You gotta get, yeah, get closer to the ark because your, your part's coming up here. David and all the people of Israel, where's David and all the people of Israel? You're celebrating before the Lord, singing songs, playing all kinds of musical instruments. So pretend like you're celebrating, you're playing musical instruments. That's exactly right, yeah, that's exactly right. We've got lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals, no zither in this text. But when they arrived at the threshing floor of Nacon, which is somewhere right around here, I think, the threshing floor of Nacon is somewhere right around here. Ready? The oxen stumbled. Yes, the oxen stumbled. They're stumbling. And now here it is. Where's Uzzah? Where's Uzzah? He reached out his hand, here's what the Bible says, and steadied the ark of God. Oxen stumble, you reach out your hand to steady the ark of God. Uh-oh. Yep. Then the Lord's anger was aroused against Uzzah. Yes. <laughs> and God struck him dead because of this. Yes. So Uzzah died right there beside the uh, Oh my goodness. And David was angry. Because the Lord's anger had burst out against Uzzah, and he named that place Perez Uzzah, which means to burst out against Uzzah, as it is still called today. Wow, you guys are fantastic. Give it up. Spontaneous melodrama right here. Nice going. See, I could have read it, and you would have forgotten it, but they stepped through it, acted it out. Uzzah died, and you won't ever forget it. Nice job, oxen. Way to go. And so here's the question. Jeez, you guys rock. Thank you very much. Uzzah. What was it exactly that prompted God's divine display of rage? I mean, really, Uzzah's doing a good thing, right? He's protecting the ark from tipping over and falling onto the ground. Surely he did not deserve a death sentence. Why does God have to kill him? And you notice, don't you, David, King David, who the scripture calls a man after God's own heart, got mad at Yahweh for this outburst. Like, what in the world, God? And narratives like this, stories like this, give the God of the Old Testament quite a bad reputation. Because this is a deeply troubling story. If this is not a deeply troubling, deeply troubling story to you, it ought to be. It ought to be. So let's press into it. And see if we can make it at least a little more understandable. Right off the bat, I'm going to tell you, Yahweh's angry for three main reasons. First one is that the way that the Israelites were carrying the ark makes God angry. 
Remember back early on in the Old Testament of Scripture, God's really clear about exactly how they're supposed to carry the ark. And in this narrative, the story of Uzzah, they're not obeying him, not even close. Early on in the scriptures, God prescribes how the Israelites are to carry the ark, and putting it into a cart is not in the prescription. It's supposed to be carried by priests on these poles, by these poles, lifted like this, is how the Israelites are supposed to carry the ark. Exodus chapter 25 is where the prescription is, a few other places in the Old Testament. So you see, God's more than clear, more than once, about how the carrying of the ark was supposed to go. And up to this point, up to the Uzzah story, the Israelites had always gotten it right. They're, they're like, oh yeah, God put, had us put these poles on there for a very specific reason, and so they're the carrying poles. They aren't just decorative, they're the carrying poles. And we hear that and we're like, geez, God con God's concern for the ark being carried just the right way seems like a little like OCD or something, doesn't it? Like we're, we're pretty casual. Like, look, my shirt's all untucked. I'm wearing jeans, and some people in this room are wearing hats right now. You know, we're pretty casual. And, and yet God prescribes very specifically how his ark is supposed to be carried. But understand that to God, handling the ark of the covenant was inherently dangerous. Sort of like handling radioactive material. If you don't use proper protocols when you transport something like, oh, I don't know, plutonium, well, people can die, can't they? And in the very same way, God gives his people very specific guidelines so they're never reckless with the ark because, well, God's a way bigger deal than plutonium is. God's really upset with his people because they're not carrying his ark properly. And check this part out, this is important. The text tells us really specifically, all of Israel was present on this day that the ark was coming home. Why is that significant? Well, it's because when the whole nation is looking on, on that kind of a stage, God cannot have anyone thinking that obedience is something that's optional. Because it's not. Especially because it was the Israelites' disobedience that led to the ark having been seized by the Philistines in the first place. And so God's anger demonstrated in a situation of disobedience, it gets King David's attention. It gets the attention of the entire nation of Israel because you know what? From that point on, they always carried the ark properly. They knew better. And yeah, you're right. Someone dying to teach that is really harsh. It is. But God had warned them. This didn't just come out of nowhere. God says, don't touch the ark. Because the person who touches the ark is going to die. Uzzah should not have touched the ark. That's not the only reason God was angry. God's also angry because his ark was really, well, it was like riding in the trunk. So they're carrying it improperly. He's also angry because his ark is riding in the trunk. It wasn't just disobedient, it, it was also insulting, incredibly disrespectful. What does the Ark of the Covenant represent to the nation of Israel? What's it represent? Exactly, it represents God's presence. That's exactly right. That means this thing warrants extraordinary care, which is why the method of Ark transportation that was prescribed by God was this thing called a litter. It's called a litter. 
It's a chair or a throne for a distinguished person supported by people carrying poles on either side. Royalty were frequently honored by this method of transportation. Several people would pick the person up. They would ride on the litter. It was really important that God's symbolic presence be treated in royal fashion because he's their God, he's their king, he's their ruler. He deserves it. And so you put someone royal on a litter, the way the ark was supposed to be carried, and you put stuff like equipment and grain and the like, you put that stuff into a wagon or into a cart. Royalty does not ride in wagons or in carts. Ever. Putting the ark of God onto a cart was an insult to him. And, and, and set the stage, right? The day that Uzzah dies, the Israelites, they're celebrating the return of the ark. It was a huge day. Big deal. And by putting the ark into a cart, they were implying that this thing was merely cargo. Instead of following God's law, they just went with what was easy. You could almost hear them like, ah, just throw that thing in the cart. It's big. It's really heavy. We got a ways to go. We're in a hurry. Just load it up and we'll get out of here. And is it any wonder that God was mad? The ark deserved to be treated not simply as a fancy box. It is the symbolic presence of God. God's mad because he's relegated to the trunk of the car, if you will. And then there's one more reason that God's upset. It's because the Israelites lost the ark in the first place. He's like, seriously, you lost the thing that represents my presence to you. And them losing the ark of the covenant was just one of the symptoms of the reality that they lacked concern for their relationship with God. Imagine how deeply upsetting that would be to him. Not only did the ark symbolize the presence of God, it also symbolized the covenantal relationship between God and his people. You read the Old Testament of the Bible, it's really all about a generally one-sided relationship, isn't it? In which one partner, God, was much more committed than the other partner, the people of Israel. That's just how it went again and again and again. And Israel cheats on God. And God pursues them, loves them back into relationship. Israel cheats on God. God pursues them. This generally one-sided relationship again and again. And God's patient. God didn't punish Israel immediately. But eventually, at some point, he had to take drastic measures to draw the Israelites' attention back to him. God so valued his covenant with his people that he needed to communicate the truth. I'm not tolerating any disrespect for the object that symbolizes our relationship. Don't screw around with this thing. So that narrative, Uzzah and the ark, Uzzah falling over dead because he touches the ark, shows us that Yahweh's anger gets kindled in order to protect his law, to protect his honor, to protect his relationship with his people. And honestly, think about this. Who wants to know and follow and serve a God who isn't passionate about his relationship with you? I wouldn't. I wouldn't. I want to give you this little freebie for the next time you get bogged down in a passage of scripture where God seems to get exceptionally angry. No charge for this one. I put it in a little box on your notes page. When you run across a text like this where you see someone struck dead by God, first of all, ask yourself this question. Why does God get so angry? Why? 
And be willing to dig through some layers, be willing to find a legitimate reason for God's anger. Because you see, God's anger is never just random. Press into the story, press into the backstory to see if you can determine the reason why God is angry. Second thing, read the whole story. We often take stories like the story of Uzzah, we take it out of context and we just read it all by itself without setting up the backstory, everything else that had been going on, and we're like, geez, God's like this random jerk striking people dead. But there's, right, there was a lot to the backstory. I just spent 10 minutes unpacking the backstory. Read the whole thing. Consider the context of everything going on. Third, have reasonable expectations as you do that. You're not ever going to be able to answer all the questions. You're not ever going to be able to resolve all the problems. But with just a little bit of digging, you'll better understand what's going on with God's behavior. I want to go back to the Doonesbury comic that I started with. All right, this is Sam. She's talking to the pastor. God's only son is this total pacifist, she says. He wouldn't harm a flea. He's just this humble dude who's mellow to everyone, even the Romans, typical caricature of Jesus Christ. And then she says, well, he only really snaps once, right? And then Sam's mom says, with who, honey? And it's the moneylenders, mom, Sam says. All right, what is it about moneylenders? And then the pastor says, they do seem to set people off, don't they? And there's Sam bringing up the most famous example of Jesus. So we see God in the Old Testament, Yahweh loses his temper, he gets angry, Uzzah dies. And then Sam brings up this example, what's called the cleansing of the temple scene, Matthew chapter 21, verses 12 and 13. Here's what happened. Jesus entered the temple, he began to drive out all the people buying and selling animals for sacrifice. He knocked over the tables of the money changers, the chairs of those selling doves. He said to them, the scriptures declare, my temple will be called a house of prayer, but you have turned it into a den of thieves. Jesus is angry. He's angry that people, in particular the Gentiles, those are the people who were not Jews, that they were being deprived of the opportunity to pray and worship God. And in his rebuke, Jesus quotes this passage from Isaiah chapter 56. He goes all the way back to the Old Testament to remind everybody that the temple is supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations, all people. But it had been turned into something else entirely. And he's upset. Jesus walks in and he sees something more akin to people trying to pray in the middle of the New York Stock Exchange on Monday morning shortly after the opening bell. Imagine trying to pray in that environment. Imagine trying to worship God in that you couldn't because it's chaos, isn't it? Jesus' anger is kindled because people are being prevented from communing with their God. And sometimes people point to this scene in sort of self-serving ways and they're like, yeah, look, even Jesus lost his cool and they point to Jesus as an effort to sort of justify their own angry outbursts, right? Even Jesus, some of the texts of scripture even talk about Jesus making a whip and whipping the money changers out of them. They're like, sweet, Jesus did it, I can do it. But it wasn't just a, an angry random outburst. I wanna show you something. The night before Jesus goes in and cleanses the temple as it's called, He's ridden into Jerusalem in what's called the triumphal entry 
Those of you who are tracking with our Through the New Testament in 2014, you probably read an account of the triumphal entry in the last few days or so, right? Go borrow the donkey. They put their garments, the disciples do, over it, and they're singing Hosanna, Hosanna, right? The triumphal entry is like Palm Sunday. That's what we call it. So he rides into Jerusalem, and before he ever cleanses the temple, he goes to the temple. Look at Mark chapter 11, verse 11, just to have a look around. So Jesus came to Jerusalem, and he went into the temple. And look what he does. After looking around carefully at everything, what did he do? He didn't immediately go start knocking tables over and making whips and whipping butts out of the tent. No, he left. After looking around carefully at everything, he left because it was late in the afternoon. Then he returned to Bethany with the 12 disciples. Jesus scouts the temple. He saw the tables. He saw the money changers. He would have smelled the deposits of the animals, of the livestock. But he didn't do anything about it on that day. He leaves, and he goes back to Bethany. And it wasn't until the very next day, the next day, he takes action. The next day, he displays his wrath. Which means it's really, really fair to say that Jesus Christ, just like Yahweh, was slow to anger. He didn't just pop off. He's slow to anger. Okay, so God in the Old Testament gets angry. Uzzah dies. Jesus in the New Testament gets angry. Money changers get whipped out of the temple. But it still doesn't answer the question, aren't Yahweh's angry responses extreme? Why does God have to kill people? in his anger. And I'm going to take you down a pretty difficult road right now. When you read the scripture, Old Testament and New Testament, what's revealed is the truth that death is the punishment for sin. Over and over and over and over and over again, both testaments of scripture reveal death is the punishment for sin. Period. The death of Uzzah in the Old Testament If you want a New Testament example, you go to Ananias and Sapphira, Acts chapter 5. If you don't know who they are, it's not a dissimilar story to the story of Uzzah. And so people dying as a result of their sin really should not ever come as a shock to us because God's on record saying, look, death is the punishment for sin, period. Death is the punishment for sin, But we very often get really surprised by these intense stories like Uzzah, like Ananias and Sapphira, because the vast majority of times when people sin, even you and me, no one instantly dies, do they? And aren't we glad? We're really glad. So then when we see an example where someone all of a sudden does die as a result of their sin, it seems really harsh, it seems really unfair, and we're like, God, what in the world? But God's clear. The wages of sin are death. But if that's true, why aren't more people dying immediately as the result of their sin? Why not? You know why? Because God is gracious and God is slow to anger. Because God is gracious and God is slow to anger. God very, very often decides to delay punishment for sin and give people, us, opportunities to repent. 
And when we see those really severe punishments, we should be reminded that death is the consequence of sin instead of saying stuff like, geez, God, you're so mean. Rather, those delayed punishments remind us, God, you're gracious. God, you're slow to anger. Yet so many people are so, so good at just taking the grace and mercy of God very, very much for granted. We just take it and take it and take it. But what's true is that death is the punishment for sin. I want to finish with one more thing today. And it's around this idea. What can we possibly learn about our own anger from God in the Old Testament? And what we see is that God's anger is kindled, it's triggered by two things. First, I didn't put these on your notes page, but you could write them down if you wanted to. God gets angry about broken relationships. God gets angry about broken relationships. One of the main causes of God's anger in the Uzzah narrative was the fact that his people had broken their covenant with him. Like snapped it in two. I want to do a show of hands thing on this deal, so pay close attention to this. How many people think that it is legitimate to get angry if your spouse cheats on you? Raise your hand right now. Yeah. yeah. Lots of people raise their hand. The rest of the people who didn't weren't listening. Because it is. It's, it's legitimate to get angry if your spouse cheats on you. A cheating spouse is a legitimate cause for anger. Lots and lots of stuff in life is meant to be shared. Spouses aren't one of them. Right? your spouse commits adultery you're going to be angry because their cheating represents a broken relationship as a matter of fact a broken covenant with you and it's a lot like that with God and his anger because you see he cares enough about his covenant relationship with his people with us with the nation of Israel that he gets angry when they sever when they break their relationship with him And so we ought to be just like God in that we care enough about broken relationships. It doesn't matter with who, whether it's spouses or family members or friends or just anyone in general to actually become upset, to actually be angry when there's relational conflict, a relational problem between two people. We ought to get mad about it. God does. We ought to get upset about it. Because you see, God says, look, you ought not just ignore the problem that exists between you and whoever it is. Rather, God says, go and fix it. Go and reconcile the problem. Go and make it right. And the cool deal is that God lives that out himself. He isn't just sitting in heaven telling us to go live that out. He's doing it. He's engaged in it. He's pursuing us all the time when we sever relationship with him. And he says, do like I do. And this cool deal about anger is that it can very often be a catalyst for reconciliation. Right? If you're mad about a broken relationship, if you're mad about relational damage with someone in your world, use it as a catalyst for making it right. I don't want to be mad like this anymore. I'm tired of carrying this thing around, this relational baggage around, this damaged relationship around. I want to fix it. Let your anger be a catalyst for making that relationship right. God gets angry about broken relationships. The other thing, and you might write this down, is that God gets angry about injustice. 
Right? Makes sense. God gets angry about injustice. Think about almost all the way back to the very beginning of scriptures. God delivers Israel from Egyptian captivity. Why? Because they're being oppressed. They're being crushed. They're being trampled. He sets them free in really dramatic fashion, right? And after he does that, he says, hey, you're on the hook, Israel. You care for orphans, and you care for widows, and you care for the oppressed, and you care for the marginalized. You're on the hook, Israel. You be about that. So we were like, okay, we're down with that. A whole bunch of people today in the church of Jesus Christ are all about that. But the majority of our world doesn't care about injustice, let alone get angry at it. But understand this, God cares. God cares. Because he loves people. He loves all people. And in instances where there is a lack of compassion, it ticks God off. And he even goes so far as to punish those who oppress others. He's really, really clear about that all through the scriptures. Do not, do not oppress anybody, God says. God gets angry about broken relationships. God gets angry about injustice. And that circles us back to our original question. Is the God of the Old Testament angry? Yes, he is. Is the God of the New Testament angry? Yes, he is. Is the God of the Old Testament loving? Yes, he is. Is the God of the New Testament loving? Yes, he is. And that's all possible because anger and love are not mutually exclusive. Love for people leads to anger over broken relationships. Love for people leads to anger over injustice. And here's what we know about God. He is both quick, catch this, he's quick to love, he's slow to anger, and he's the one who we should be striving to emulate when it comes to both love and anger. Be about that. Emulate God. Quick to love. Slow to anger. And angry about the right things, not stupid things. Be angry about the right things, broken relationships, injustice. Take your stuff and set it aside if you would, and I just invite you to close your eyes, bow your heads if you would. Just invite you to interact with the Lord about these things that we've been talking about, thinking about together. heads bowed and eyes closed, maybe you're someone today who's coming alive to this reality that while God was sometimes angry, justifiably so, the truth is that Jesus Christ loves you so much that in the midst of his anger, he still died to take upon himself the consequences of your and my sin. He takes it from you for you. Whoa. What a staggering reality. 
And maybe there's some of you here today who are coming alive to that truth that Jesus right now is inviting you into eternal life with him. Life that was only made possible by his death on the cross, his burial, his resurrection on the third day, that first Easter. Maybe some of you today are coming alive to this reality that Jesus right now is inviting you to salvation and forgiveness from your sin once and for all. He's inviting you today to step across the line of faith into him. And if that's you, you can take the really bold step of trusting Christ with your everything by praying along with me. If that's you, pray with me right now, right where you're sitting. Just say, Jesus, I get it. Yes, I'm a sinner. Jesus, I realize that I am utterly incapable of saving myself. I've been trying really hard. But I can't do it. I need you, Jesus. And so by faith, I gratefully receive your gift of salvation. You're what I need, Jesus. So here I am, all of me, my heart, my life, my soul, my everything. Thank you, Jesus, for bearing my sin. And thank you, Jesus, for giving me the gift of eternal life. I trust you with my everything. And if you're someone who's stepping into the saving faith of Jesus Christ today, that is the biggest decision of your whole life. And it's such a big deal around here. We like to acknowledge when people make that decision. And so I want you to know, this is a private moment. Every head is bowed, every eye is closed. It's just you, me, and God looking on. If you prayed with me just then to step across the line of faith into Jesus Christ, into a relationship with him, would you be so bold as to right now, would you just lift your hand real high and lock eyes with me? You can do that right now. You can do that right now. You're saying yes to Jesus today. Yeah, way to go. And yeah, way to go, yes. Yes, way to go. Crossing over from death to life. God, thank you so much for enabling us to at least understand in very small part who you are at your core. Thanks for letting us wrestle with the tensions that exist even within you. So much of this we confess, Jesus, doesn't make sense entirely to us. But God, that you would continue to reveal yourself to us a little bit, a little bit, a little bit more every single day because we don't just want to know about you. We don't just want our relationship with you to be this intellectual pursuit where we have all these thoughts about God and that's cool. Uh-uh. We want to know you at the very core of our being, God. We want to have a personal relationship with you. And God, I thank you for these today who have said yes to you. Who you've been working in and who you've been pursuing for some time. God, they're saying, yes, I want to live life your way. I'm stepping into life the way you intended life to be lived. Jesus, we celebrate today. Thank you, God. Thank you, God, for what you're doing. And that, Jesus, you would equip us a little bit more and a little bit more 
to display and declare the fullness of who you are moment by moment, day by day with everyone in our world. Yeah, we won't be able to answer all the questions, but Jesus, help us speak truthfully and honestly about who you are. Yes, you're angry. Yes, you're loving. And in the midst of even that tension that exists, you still died for us. You still were buried for us. You still rose for us. And you want the gift of salvation for every single person on planet Earth. And we get to be your messengers, Jesus. Send us out to be your messengers, please, God.